Warren G. Harding once asked his Commerce Secretary and future President Herbert Hoover this question. If you knew of a great scandal in our administration, would you, for the good of the country and the party, expose it publicly, or would you bury it? The word scandal seems to follow the word politics naturally, but before Watergate, the debacle that brought down Nixon, the words that every American would have known to mean corruption and scandal were these, teapot dome. You're listening to Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, episode 102, The Teapot Dome Scandal. Okay, Tyler, for our get-to-know-you question today, I want to know about some of the unnamed characters in the story of your life that you think about all the time. And by that, I mean, I have people who have crossed my path who, not friends or acquaintances, but people I saw, people I observed from a distance, maybe just a one-time interaction. And in the shower, I'm like, I wonder where that guy is at today. <laughs> so I want to hear oh, about man. your uh, the unnamed characters in the movie of your life. <laughs> this is such a good question. I really should think more about this too, because there must there may be one that really is in the back of my head that I'm not thinking of right now. But when you asked me the question, I thought of... Um, I would say one answer in particular, and this is because this is a family story that gets told every now and then at like holiday gatherings or whatever, because it's a story that happened to me when I was a teenager and it was funny enough that everybody in the family remembered it. But my family had been, we went to the mall and we had been borrowing a car from a family friend. Um, I think ours was in the shop or something. So my mom was driving our family friend's car and she took me and my siblings to the mall and we had dinner or something. And I didn't recognize the car. I just remembered that it was like a beige sedan. So we're coming back from dinner and I see a beige sedan and I'm like, oh, there they are. And so I open up the door of the beige sedan and it is not the car that we had been borrowing. <laughs> and actually, there were people in the car. And actually, I think it was just one woman in the car. And she was very concerned that I was trying to break into her car as she was sitting in it. And she just goes, <laughs> no, 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 no. And she points her finger and is like wagging her finger in my face. <laughs> and then I see like behind me, my family is all standing outside and they're just cracking up laughing. <laughs> Um, um, but we tell that story all the time because first of all it's somewhat embarrassing you know I didn't recognize the car that we were in also I do think that her reaction was a little bit over the top I'm like lady I'm not trying to steal anything from you it's well, like I, a teenager you know and I love that if you were that was her a, pr approach was just like that oh, was her approach yeah no 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 you like leave. a bad dog <laughs> <laughs> Um, I wonder where she is now. I wonder if she realizes that I was not a criminal. She probably <clears throat> is convinced to this day that she fought off a nasty criminal at the short pump mall. For sure. Escaped by the skin of her teeth. For sure. That is the that is the perfect like unnamed character story. That's exactly what I had in mind. I love that. <laughs> That's hilarious. 
Okay, let's hear yours. So I have two. The first is um, I had more than one interaction with this person, but I never spoke a word to him. Um, so my wife and I were, went to college in Arizona for a little while and on campus, there was a guy who was pushing seven feet tall. Oh, wow. Very tall. He was on the basketball team. He had the most majestic Afro that I've ever seen in my entire life. And he just walked around and he would, um, like dance to no music in the library (laughs) Just like, like feeling it, eyes closed, nobody around him, and he would just go for it. He was a a character, and we um, called him Big Sexy because he was just a tall, good-looking man. And so we talked about Big Sexy all the time. Or off? No headphones? No, oh, no headphones. He was just Just dancing something. Yeah. And that kind of stuff, you just see him doing kind of weird stuff, and he. It was just an interesting, hilarious guy, and uh, yeah, we caught we nicknamed him Big Sexy, and <laughs> we talk about him sometimes. So, like, I wonder where he's at. We could probably track down his name and go figure out who he was because he's on the basketball team. Oh but, yeah, um, he's uh, he's definitely person number one. My second person who I think about all the time is actually somebody I never, I didn't ever see their face oh. um, when I was at BYU. I occasionally, especially early on, uh, rode a bike around campus and I rode a bike to um, one of the buildings and I locked my bike to the rack and went to class all day or whatever. And when I came out in the um, evening, I realized um, that I had committed a cardinal sin, which was I had accidentally linked somebody else's bike in my lock yeah so so in in you know threading the lock or whatever through my tire or frame i had looped somebody else's wheel in oh no and so they got to their thing undid their lock and there was a second lock holding their bike to the rack and they left me a note and (laughs) this is the most byu note ever it was like i'm really upset that this happened but I'm trying to keep my cool. And they left me uh, like a candy. They were like, Oh my goodness. <laughs> they were like, I can't believe you didn't notice this. This is, this is so ridiculous. This is like totally throwing off my day, but you know what? I'm trying to, trying to keep calm, trying to be generous and charitable. So have like a, you know, have a smarty or whatever. That's fold- incredible. I know. Folded up in this little note and like taped to my handlebar. Wow. So I think about that person all the time, and I hope that they have found their inner zen. They they were well on their way. Well, I was going to say, like, what does that cost them one day with their bike? They came back tomorrow, and then it was fine? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they'll be all right. Yeah, Um, but I just loved the note. It was like... The note and the candy is really amazing. So great. If anyone is listening to this and doesn't understand uh, what BYU culture was like, that story in itself is extremely illuminating. It's pretty good, yeah. That's, that's pretty on the nose. <laughs> All right, so I'm very excited about this episode today. I think um, 
in compiling all the notes and kind of synthesizing everything together, this is kind of a different one for our podcast. Do you, would, do you feel that way? Or is this in line with what we usually talk about? I mean, I would only, I would, I would say yes in the sense that it's something I read on Wikipedia and I consider anything fair game. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Right. But I, I see, I see what you mean. I think because uh, we just, we're going to delve into some things that we haven't really addressed before. Hmm. Uh, maybe this is a time period that we haven't talked about a lot before. I think that's also part of it. Um, so I'm just, I'm excited. I think it's pretty neat. But what sparked the idea for this episode is an event that happened in American history called the Teapot Dome Scandal, which I'm sure that uh, some of us may remember from the dusty corners of high school history tests, like having to answer a question about <laughs> Teapot Dome. Uh, I, if I did, I don't remember it, but the name Teapot Dome, I think, does kind of ring a bell. Um, and Teapot Dome, without giving too much away, was a scandal in the American presidency that was huge, enough to the point that it uh, tarnished the reputation of the American president at the time. And so we'll talk today about who that president was and what happened in the Teapot Dome scandal. And there's uh, there's no better place to start with that, with actually another Wikipedia page that when you sent it to me, Tyler, I mean, this is <laughs> one of the best I've ever seen. It's so it's much fun. Really awesome. The page is called Historical Rankings of Presidents of the United States. And it's basically a breakdown of Who's the best? Who's the worst? And how do we order them? And I that is a very interesting idea to me. And it's um, mm -hmm. I love the page because it's it pulls together various lists. There's like a table, and it's like this is what one study or one you know research center ranked, and it, so you can look at the president and see where they ranked on this uh, study and this survey and this whatever. Um, lots of historians' opinions. Um, and it's worth prefacing this episode to point out that, um, Warren G. Harding, the president related to the Teapot Dome scandal is typically one of the lowest ranked presidents in history. Um, but this Wikipedia page is quite glorious. One of the things I like about it is this is an obvious question, like who's the best, who's the worst. Yeah. But how do you do that? How do you objectively ask that question and come to any sort of consensus um the two most obvious ways that kind of stand out to me are how do we how were they perceived in their time so like did they accomplish things that people wanted to have accomplished did they do things did they fulfill the promises they said they were going to fulfill um, you know, you could think of a few kind of maybe measures of success, and even those are, are fairly arbitrary or at least subjective. But then you could also ask and say, well, what if one of the president's promises to the nation was I'm going to, you know, kick Native Americans off of their lands and turn it into grazing for white settlers? Right. We probably don't love that. And so, you know, do we rank them by how they are today? Um, and then that brings a whole myriad of of issues i mean if are we going to evaluate each of these uh men by like how they how they fare against our standards of you know racial equality gender issues a, a myriad of social issues i mean barack obama when he ran for president uh, 
opposed gay marriage. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. So like as, as recently yeah. as that, you know, we there's uh, there's been a lot of changes and stuff. And so and that's a much larger conversation in an American um, society in general. Right. Like, how do you deal with mm-hmm. people who, you know, have had different views on things or whatever? And so it's really a kind of a sticky situation. Um, one of the other things that I enjoyed about this was a lot of the, you know, histor- history professors or think tanks or whoever decide to sit down and say, we're going to rank these presidents. They often don't take the most recent presidents into account. They say, we're going to rank up to, you know, Nixon or whoever, up to uh, Reagan. Yeah, okay. And this reminds me of something that um, this is my second shout out to a, a professor from Eastern Arizona College, but I had a history professor. I think I took every class he taught. I loved his classes. Um, Dr. Lukens at EAC. And he, um, I took an a, a pol- American political history or something class. And the first day of class, he says, we're going to stop in X year. I don't remember what it was, <clears throat> 1990 or something. And he said, and the reason for that is, the closer we get to the present day, the more difficult it is to be objective about history because those issues are still affecting us. You know, the partisan politics are much more, it's a more, you know, a live question to us um, as opposed to, you know, what Millard Fillmore thought about the Federal Reserve. I don't give a crap about that. I don't know anything about that. Um, But I might have strong feelings about Reagan or George W. Bush or Barack Obama or whatever um, because it was like my lived experience. And so um, that's what that reminded me of. And I think that's probably makes good sense. Um, Also, because with time, I think some of the issues of the quality of a president, some things settle, right? Like maybe this seemed something seemed like a good idea or a bad idea at the time. And now in hindsight, it's like that was actually, you know, not what it seemed. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, who knows what we'll think about, you know, whatever the president did this week in 30 years. But it's probably best to wait 30 years before we really start thinking about it. So a lot of these lists aren't going to rank your, you know, George W. Bush, your Obama, your Trump and your uh, your Biden, for instance. So if we look at the top, I think most people could probably guess who these are going to be at least, you know, get two of the top three. It's fairly consistently Washington, Lincoln. And FDR, who I was a little bit surprised to see in third, but um, Mm -hmm. it makes sense. He led the nation through, you know, a kind of an unprecedented conflict um, that was World War Two. And so it makes sense that he's there. Um, I think most people, you know, Washington and Lincoln are pretty easy to to point to. Mm -hmm. Um, I also found it interesting that several of the post-World War II presidents are very high, like three or four or five, depending on which survey you look at. So, you know, Eisenhower and and Truman and stuff. That was quite interesting. Um, And Thomas Jefferson is also high on on many lists. He's number two on one of the lists. Um, Mm -hmm. So interesting. And I think, like I said, kind of fairly um, self-evident. The bottom, however, is less obvious i think that most people i i included if you'd asked me before i started looking at this who are the bottom three presidents of all time uh-huh. i don't think i would have gotten any of the three that are commonly given and i don't know who i would have said but um the bottom is I, for me is kind of where it's more interesting 
And one interesting part is that there are often, um, in the same way that more recent presidents are excluded, there are other exclusions that many list makers um, um, use for people who didn't really get a chance to be president very long. So William Henry Harrison and James Garfield, for instance, are not even usually included on these lists because they died in their first year in office. And that makes sense, right? Like, they didn't even get a year to be the president, so we're just kind of going to give them a zero score, um, not not rank them, because uh, that wouldn't really be fair. Zachary Taylor is also sometimes not included, although he died about 16 months into the presidency. Um, so he sometimes is included and sometimes isn't. Now, at the bottom, there are three that are pretty consistently, you know, if you look at the the patterns that emerge among the various surveys, There are three that emerge as the bottom. James Buchanan, Andrew Johnson, and Warren G. Harding. And I wouldn't, like I said, I don't think that would have instantly sprung to mind. And I think it's interesting. Buchanan and Johnson are immediately preceding and immediately um, following Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. (laughs) Often (laughs) considered like kind of by a wide margin to be the greatest president we've ever had. And that's interesting. It kind of makes you wonder if it's just proximity, right? Like if you're, you, who, who can follow that act, you know? And so you're, you're like judged harshly, but I found it interesting that Buchanan is often um, criticized for not handling the, the rumblings of the civil war. Well, um, mm. not, you know, taking the, the the actions that maybe should have been taken and that led to the civil war which lincoln then um you know that fell in his lap and he um kind of rose to glory because of his his deft handling of the civil war and then johnson was immediately after and he's often criticized for screwing up reconstruction which is something we talked about in our recent os confederados episode where you know maybe we took it too light in certain areas or whatever and and didn't um hold the south to or the confederate forces to account or whatever so Mm -hmm. that's interesting that those two bookends of lincoln are are often the bottom two and then last is warren g harding we'll get into this more as we go but um i'm prepared by the end of this podcast to convince everybody listening that we need to uh get some harding i think he has been unfairly maligned in history so i'm i'm team team harding um and one final thing that i found interesting um a u.s editor for the times uh the new york times gerald baker wrote about kind of this whole endeavor of ranking presidents and um at the time there had been 42 and he this is what he said the 42 american presidents fall into a well-established bell curve or normal distribution on a chart, a handful of outstanding ones, a handful of duds, and a lot of so-sos. I couldn't, in all honesty, therefore, really say that number 13 on the list is that much better than number 30. Wow. That's really very succinct. I like that a lot. I agree. Like, who, Millard Fillmore, I don't know, man. Is he, how does he compare to... (laughs) Taft, I, I whatever you know like i that's hard to say and especially as these numbers grow but it's kind of cool that there is a bell curve um you know like you said the handful of greats and a handful of duds and a lot of in the middle and so maybe the whole endeavor of trying to decide and rank these people is a problem 
um, or is never going to be, you know, really a, a winning proposition. But like I said, by the end, I'm going to hopefully convince everybody to be on uh, Team Warren. I'm excited to um, see this challenge unfold. Um, I'm really curious about these rankings. Were there ever any attempts to quantify how well a president did, like in a, a score? Because we've seen rankings like above or against each other, but that's different from like this was their total number of points that they got. That is an excellent question. I didn't look. So the Wikipedia page has one, two, three, four. I mean, there's probably there's a at lot, least a right? dozen yeah. examples. So, for instance, if you look on the page, George Washington, um, you know, the the various studies and and, you know, surveys list him as two, two, three, two, four, 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 yeah. three, two, three, one, four, one, two, two, four, three. So you can kind of get a, a pretty good gloss on him, what he's about. Um, you know, you go down to Millard Fillmore, he's in the high 20s to the 30s. And so um, I didn't look at the individual ones, but that that is a really good question because, and I would love to write kind of the criteria for that. So for instance, you know, were they considered, did they have a reputation for like honesty? I don't know. That would seem important. Yeah. Did they Did they live up to like their promises? Did they accomplish the things they said they were going to? Um, or and then you, you can use um, you can use explicit statistics. What like was GDP their, or something? Um, yeah, a GDP approval rating, like yeah. number of votes that they got, things like that. I mean, a lot of that changes throughout history and everything. But this point that the editor is making about number thirteen being kind of similar to number thirty is a really valid point. And if there was a quantifiable score, then you could actually say. Oh yeah, most of the presidents kind of fumble around somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Or maybe not. Maybe it's more spread out and number 13 is a much better position than number 30. Yeah, uh, it would definitely give you a better idea. Yeah, um, of kind of their performance. Yeah, that would be that would be really interesting. I'd like to get into it. Um I I did read a lot that there was like there's been through the years kind of um pushback, like partisan pushback. So, you know, um some law professor or whatever will be like i'm going to commission this new study because that was a bunch of old conservative cranks that uh, did this and so that this most recent one skews you know towards whoever and I then see. somebody else will come along and say no you know and so it's kind of cool that we have various rankings to um to kind of get a constellation to observe from but yeah i like i like your idea a lot gdp maybe like unemployment during the presidency but then yeah. even that is difficult because so much of that can be inherited or out of the hands not, of the president. Right. It's not their like stewardship. They don't have a lot of control over it. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. And, and then the other problem, like you said, approval ratings, and that's an interesting metric, but there weren't approval there ratings. There weren't always approval you know? ratings, right? Yeah. And that's another thing. We're trying to, to span a history of, you know, several hundred years. And so yeah. it gets complicated. So with that in mind, uh, before we get into the presidency of Warren G. Harding, we want to talk about first the election that he won in order to clinch the presidency, which happened in 1920. And in 1920, the U.S. presidential election was a race between the Republican candidate Warren G. Harding 
and the Democratic candidate, James M. Cox. And here we should give the usual asterisk that we always have to give about the changing nature of the Republican and Democratic parties over time. Um, there's so much that we can delve into about how the parties have changed, but it's important to call out that the words as we use them now are fully unrecognizable to the way that they would have been used in 1920. You can't just think like, oh, Republican, Democrat, I know what that means, because back then it was just a totally different concept. Hmm. So this was going to be the election of the 29th president of the United States. And in 1920, we had just been through two terms of the presidency of Woodrow Wilson, who led the country through World War I. Woodrow Wilson wanted to go for a third term, but the Democratic Party to put him up for this. He was physically ailing. He was the ripe old age of 63. And he was somewhat unpopular as well. We'll talk a bit as to why that was. But in the fallout of World War I, a lot of his policies uh, weren't really holding water with the American public. Wilson suffered a stroke in 1919 to the point that it totally altered his capability. And he became prone to, quote, disorders of emotion, impaired impulse control, and defective judgment. He was incapacitated enough that his administration started leaving him out of the loop of major decisions that they were making. Although they also took care to keep his incapacitation secret from the American public. Super interesting. So the Democrats decided they would have to find a new candidate. And the public Theodore Roosevelt. Actually, I wonder how he ranked on the ranking list. Did his name come up a lot as one of the top ones? Let's take a look. Um, not, I didn't notice it standing out, but let's find him. Theodore Roosevelt. Oh, yeah, he's pretty darn high. Uh, he was ranked number two, according to one of the studies. So that's pretty high. Um, yeah, top every single one has him. Um, the lowest that he gets is a seven. Wow, well, that's very so pretty high for Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, we have to call out Teddy Roosevelt, right? I don't uh, I, his like policy and administration. I'm not as familiar with, but you have to think of him as one of the more like iconic or maybe charismatic presidents like he really has an image in the public consciousness yeah. maybe yeah. separate from a lot of the older presidents of history um so ted roosevelt would have been like a grand slam for the republican party but unfortunately he died in 1919 unexpectedly he was only 60 years old and he left no obvious political heir to his platform and if you think about running a presidential campaign, 1919, that doesn't give you a lot of time to prepare, right? Yeah. Uh, so they all had to kind of scramble for who they were going to get. And both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party ended up turning to dark horse candidates from the state of Ohio. And even 100 years ago, Ohio was still a swing state back then. <laughs> it had 24 electoral votes, which is more than it currently has today. Um, and this is because Ohio was very populous. And back then in the United States, it was a very different world geographically. The Sun Belt that we now know 
of California and Arizona and Texas had yet to emerge. And the Rust Belt of the Midwest and New England was still thriving. Um, interestingly enough, Cincinnati was one of the most populous cities in the U.S. for most of the 1800s. Yeah. And in 1920, Cleveland was the fifth most populous city. And it doesn't even rank near close to that today. <laughs> um, so Ohio had a lot more gravity back then than I think uh, it does today. Although today it is still famously a swing state. Teddy Roosevelt represented the progressive wing of the Republican Party, uh, but there wasn't a clear progressive who would satisfy the conservative wing of the Republican Party. So the Republicans found Warren G. Harding, who was the senator in Ohio, and he was kind of a compromise candidate. He was going to satisfy both the progressive wing of the party as well as the conservative wing of the party. And then the Democrats picked a man named James M. Cox. And I know you've never heard of him because, spoiler alert, he loses the election. <laughs> and on but, that note, I think it's so funny that, like, this was a, that was a major person. He could have been the president. He, he, been would, the have, president. he would have every American. And it's like, I have no idea who now, that is. Absolutely not. No <laughs> idea. It's so funny how that works out, right? Yeah. The same is, I, uh, I think, true of vice presidents. Oh, very true. It's like, like everybody who lived then knows who that is. <laughs> yeah. But everybody who came up in the next generation has no clue who that is. Yeah. Right? And, like, and you go back even 10 or tw 20 years before somebody's born, and it's like, I bet you can name maybe one or two. <laughs> and that's it. Like. Have you just, ever seen that clip that was on, I, it was some magazine or something of Kiki Palmer, the actress, and they show mm -hmm. her a photo of Dick Cheney. And she's like, I have no idea who this is. <laughs> <laughs> and Kiki Palmer is not that much younger than we are, but sure, it's yeah. kind of, it's like a real thing. It's like, if you weren't watching the news from 2004 to 2008, then yeah, you don't know who Dick Cheney is. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Very I'm looking funny. at a, I'm looking at a list of VPs right now, and like, come on, I <laughs> you could I would I would lose out of like which one of these names is a vice president is a vice president very yeah. very easily. <laughs> well, even with that in mind, even though James M. Cox is not a familiar name, you will have heard of his running mate, uh, who was the then assistant secretary to the Navy a little future president named Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Mm. This was his first foray into the presidential election, and he would lose now, but he would eventually win four presidential elections in his own time, which obviously has never happened and will never happen again. And, uh, and, it's he, also, and he went oh, on to not just be the president, but one of the highest ranking presidents. One of the highest ranking ones, yeah. right? Yeah, so nothing to sneeze at. And it's also worth noting the president, uh, the presence of candidate Eugene Debs, who I remember from high school. He was famous because he ran on the Socialist Party platform, and he ran for president five times. Mm -hmm. And this election, 1920, he was actually in jail because he had advocated for noncompliance with the draft of World War One. He received in 1920 the largest number of votes ever for a socialist candidate in a presidential election, but nevertheless, he did lose the election, and this was his final attempt out of five 
to take the presidency. America in 1920 was a very charged environment in a way that I definitely don't understand. I think I would like to try and figure this out a little bit more, but we have to imagine a couple different things going on. World War I was over. It ended in 1918. And because the war was over, there also the economic boom of the war was over. And so when the boom ended, the country sank into a recession. Woodrow Wilson wanted to have the United States in the League of Nations. And this was at the same time that many Americans were tired of the war and they wanted to stay out of foreign affairs the way that America had always done ever since 1776, right? We used to be much more isolationist than the America of the 20th century was going to become. The year 1919 saw major strikes in the meatpacking industry and in the steel industry, and it also saw large-scale race in other cities. There were anarchist attacks on Wall Street that created fear of radicals and terrorists. And the Irish Catholic and German American communities were especially outraged at Woodrow Wilson's perceived favoritism of both of their traditional enemies, which is Great Britain. And as we've already mentioned, Woodrow Wilson himself suffered a stroke in 1919, and that left him severely disabled. So a lot is going on in the buildup to 1920. And the two candidates tackled this zeitgeist in kind of different ways. James Cox, the Democratic candidate, he comes from the newspaper industry. He's founded several newspapers. He ended up fi finding a media conglomerate that is still around today. It's known as Cox Enterprises. They own, um, I think it's the Kelly Blue Book is something that I saw in a couple of other things. Oh. And they're worth over $20 billion in revenue today. So nothing to sneeze at. He took the campaign in a kind of touring, like traveling way. He visited 36 different states and he gave 394 speeches. But even still, Wikipedia has very little to say about what his platform was, except that it was mostly about domestic issues. And this fact that it was so domestic rankled all of the Wilson Democrats because they were really emphasizing the League of Nations and foreign affairs. Cox suggested lowering income tax and business taxes to help fight the inflation and unemployment of the recession. He also supported prohibition, which was the restriction of alcoholic beverages. And he advocated for Americanization uh, as a way of increasing the loyalty of immigrant communities in the United States. And that's pretty much all I found about what he supported. Uh, not too much to say for his campaign. But Warren G. Harding had a much more succinct, kind of snazzy campaign. He had a catchy slogan, which was, return to normalcy. And you can imagine what that slogan was referring to. He was really playing up how weary the country was in the aftermath of the war. They were tired of the progressive era, which had taken over the 1910s. And a lot of people were just kind of hoping that things would get back to regular again. They were. They were really done with all of this Wilson stuff. Um, James Cox had traveled far and wide to do his campaign, but Harding stayed put. He stayed in Ohio at his house and invited voters to come to him. 
And his campaign took out a lot of ad space in papers and magazines. And they actually ended up spending four times as much money as the Cox campaign did, which I thought was interesting because you would think that not going on the road would save you more money. They ended up spending more. Harding's slogan was also, he had another slogan, which was America first. And in the magazine, in a particular magazine in 1920, he had an ad that said, let's be done with wiggle and wobble. And they presented a kind of nationalistic uh, presence in the ads. They would use catchphrases like absolute control of the United States by the United States. And another phrase, independence means independence now as in 1776. This country will remain American. Um, very much playing up American history, American independence, and as we said, a return to normalcy. It's a, it's a succinct campaign. It's easy to summarize. But just like James Cox's campaign, it's pretty vague, right? There's not a lot of hard uh, promises being done here. It's just kind of ideas and imagery. And one of the reporters at the time observed, the people indeed do not know what ideas Harding or Cox represent. <laughs> Neither do Harding or Cox know. Great is democracy. <laughs> I thought that was quite funny. Um, maybe that applies more often than not with presidential elections, but especially in this case, it like I said, it, it kind of just comes down to vibes. Yeah. So, and another surprising thing is that there were rumors going around that Senator Warren G. Harding had, quote, Negro blood, which would have been taken the way that it would have been taken, but it actually did very little to damage his campaign and it didn't really have an impact at all on, um, on what the voters thought. The 1920 election was one where demographics really clinched the whole thing. I haven't even mentioned this yet, but this was the first presidential election after the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote. So it was the first time that women in America were going to vote for the U.S. president. The total vote from 1916 to 1920 jumped 42% from 19 million in 1916 to 27 million in 1920. And obviously that's because you now have enabled all the women to get out and vote. Um, if women having the vote made a difference for either candidate, Wikipedia does not seem to acknowledge it. My guess is it mattered more what communities the women were coming from. I don't think that... Hmm women were voting monolithically in one way or the other uh, because the other communities did make a very big impact. Wilson had severely alienated the Irish American community and the German American community. Obviously the Germans were mad because Wilson went into World War I against the Germans. <laughs> so of course they're going to be upset. Uh, but the Irish were also mad because he went into World War I as an ally of the British, and they're the enemy of Ireland. And he did so promising the community that he would ask Britain to give Ireland its independence. So he at least asked, and Britain said, independence, no, but the Irish can have their own states in the British Empire. And that was enough for Woodrow Wilson, but it was not enough for the Irish Americans. So when it came down to getting the vote out and giving money to the campaign and everything, 
the Irish American city machines, quote, sat on their hands for this election. Hmm. Much of the people who would have gone to vote, millions of Irish Americans and German Americans uh, who would have gone to vote, potentially Democrat, simply stayed home and did not vote at all. The result of this was the worst landslide in presidential history. Not since James Monroe was elected unopposed in 1820 had or has there ever been a more overwhelming majority. 60% of all the votes went to Harding and only 34% went to Cox, which is a margin of 26%. This is unfathomable in today's political climate where in the past presidential elections that we've had, uh, the margin has been much smaller. We have not had a margin of over 8% since Bill Clinton beat Bob Dole in 1992. Wow. Um, so a 26% margin is thus very, very significant. Wow. And that's how Warren G. Harding took the presidency. And soon after, he stepped into the White House and would... Uh, soon begin what would eventually be called one of the worst presidencies in American history. So that leads us to the big question. How did somebody who won the presidency by such a wide margin go on to be listed, you know, commonly listed as one of the three worst presidents in American history? So... The Teapot Dome scandal is essentially the one and only answer to that. There are other things. Warren, or, um, yeah, Warren G. Harding was, he had extramarital affairs and a few other things. But the, the headline here is Teapot Dome scandal. Mm. So what is that? Well, first we have to talk about coal oil. By the 20s, um, the United States has a mechanized navy. The ships need fuel. Unlike 100 years earlier when we were using wind power, basically, with sails now, Ships have boilers, and um, at this time we were transitioning to boilers that used um, coal oil. The United States obviously needed to ensure that we have a lot of that if that's what our Navy runs on, because you don't want your Navy to run out of gas. Mm -hmm. Um, We have similar problems today um, in like rare earth minerals that are used to make microchips and all that kind of stuff that obviously is at the heart of a modern military. And so we need, there's a concern and people are having this conversation. Does the United States have a good enough supply of those um, minerals and those um, object, uh, you know, items? Um, for instance, if we're getting any of them from China, is that a problem if one day China mm-hmm. decides to stop giving them to us? So it's kind of a, a problem, an, um, a centuries old problem, apparently. So years before this, President Howard Taft, in a move to secure long-term oil security for the Navy, had designated some American lands that were rich in oil as naval oil reserves. So think of how land today can be declared like a national park or a national monument. But instead of Subarus and people in sandals, you're designating it for oil rigs, right? (laughs) And so this is a special land. We're putting a fence around it and a little flag on it that says this is saved because it's got oil and the government wants to protect it so that we can get the oil out if we need it. Um, This led to something called Navy leases, these naval oil reserves, 
um, the mineral rights would be leased. The government would lease the oil production rights of the land out to some oil company or another, and they would extract the oil and create the fuel that was needed because the United States government isn't equipped to do that. So we'll get an outside company to come in and do it for us. Um, you know, imagine yourself as some oil company owner in 19, in the twenties, if you're an oil company, um, it would be great business to get that contract. It means steady work, um, and a good payday from a client who you knew is, was going to pay. They're not going to flake out or go bankrupt because it's, it's uncle Sam, it's the U S government. So one of these fields, oil fields or areas designated as, um, you know, strategically important for the United States was the Teapot Dome oil field. It's one of many lands that was set aside for oil extraction by the government. And it gets its name from a prominent rock that looked like a teapot. Um, you can see old photos that show the rock in its full pot glory. Mm. And you kind of have to look at old photos because today um, some elements of the rock have fallen or are no longer there. So it doesn't quite a teapot in the way that it once did. But if you look at the old pictures, like, and on the main Wikipedia page, yeah, it looks it, it looks quite a bit like a teapot. It's got a little spout, mm-hmm. kind of had a little handle. Um, so, in in and in a uh, landscape with not a ton of features, you know, you find a rock that looks like something in the middle of Wyoming, you're gonna, you know, that, that'll be the the reference point. Um, and Teapot Dome oil field is most certainly located in the middle of nowhere. It's almost in the exact center of Wyoming. It's a, a little bit to the North um, East, but it's the kind of, if you look at pictures, it's the kind of like wasteland landscape that they would use for like a tense meeting scene in breaking bad or something. Um, um, and I, I, I throw that in because I'm rewatching better call Saul so that I can watch the last season <laughs> and watch the end, but I've been doing that as I've been, uh, been home recently. Anyway, it's out in the middle of nowhere. It's just an oil field. Um, would not even make it into the footnotes of history were it not for the actions of a guy named Albert Bacon Fall. Albert Bacon Fall was Secretary of the Interior under Warren G. Harding. And it was part of his job to do the leases on this land that had been set aside special for its oil um, production. The lease for the Teapot Dome oil field was given in 1922. Um, he leased those rights to a man named Harry F. Sinclair. And if you've ever filled your car up at a Sinclair gas station, mm. that's what we're talking about, the Sinclair Oil Corporation. Um, he leased another area called the Elk Hills Reserve to a man named Edward Doheny of Pan American Petroleum. And I guess the Elk Hills wasn't as catchy as um, Teapot Dome. And so it's not the Elk Hills scandal, it's the Teapot Dome scandal. Both leases were issued without competitive bidding, which might seem kind of fishy, but that was actually legal at the time. And so it was just like, here's a company, tell us what you want to do it for. Okay, we agree to your price. Um, Let's Mm -hmm. do this. These leases were very favorable to the oil companies. It was, you know, by any way you look at it, a jackpot of a contract that paid very well. It was, it was a, you know, a, a road apple. But that's not the problem here. The problem isn't that the oil companies made a bunch of money. And the problem isn't that, um, you know, they didn't get it competitively or, or whatever. The problem is that Secretary of the Interior, Albert Fall, um, accepted bribes in order to steer these to these two men, to Harry Sinclair and to Edward Doheny. 
Um, he received a no interest loan from Doheny of a hundred thousand dollars, which today would be um, one point over one point six million dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, that happened in November of nineteen twenty one, and he received other gifts from both of them, Doheny and Sinclair, totaling um, in today's money almost seven million dollars. So gifts that came to him in various ways. Some of them came to um, close family members. You know, the, oh, here's a big stack of money that comes to uh, to my my wife or my brother in law, whoever it was. Um, but from these men, that money changing hands, that quid pro quo, is the illegal part. Um, since then, this is kind of the quintessential example of government corruption. You have a government position. In that government position, you are to make choices and decisions, and you allow something, um, in this case, big piles of 1920s money, to make that decision rather than, you know, your judgment, what's best for the nation or your department or whatever. Um, I work uh, for the government in my job, and I do trainings every year on this. Um, I am not writing million dollar oil leases to anybody so it's i usually roll my eyes for parts of it as i'm like i don't think anybody wants to bribe me in my little back office but um you know this is now kind of exactly what um we we how we describe political corruption somebody is making their decisions you know using their office to enrich themselves um it's textbook political Mm. um corruption there was a cover-up after this. Obviously, Albert Fall wasn't just like, hey, look at all this money I got. Um, he tried to hide it. However, he makes the mistake that almost everybody seems to make or that often um, is made. He doesn't, he, he, his standard of living changes. He suddenly has a bunch of money. He doesn't hide it very well. Um, again, I'm thinking of In Better Call Saul where the, the nerdy um, pharmaceutical guy suddenly is driving around in a huge Hummer. And it's like, this is a mistake, dude. People are going to get suspicious. And so, um, for instance, Albert Fall was 10 years behind in his taxes on a ranch that he owned. And then one day he's like, yeah, let's just go ahead and take care of all that right now. And, you know, this that kind of thing raises eyebrows as well as his just um, standard of living, his clothes, his, you know, automobiles or whatever, the things, his, the jewelry his wife is wearing. You can imagine how all of that would go up a notch all of a sudden and people would get curious. And they, they did get curious. A man named Carl McGee, who went on to start um, a major newspaper in Albuquerque, brought public attention to this, um, to the taxes that on the ranch that he owned in New Mexico. He's like, Hey, check this out. Doesn't this seem fishy to anybody else? And um, there's kind of a longer story about the, the fallout in the investigation but basically, Albert Fall tried to hide his tracks, and he did a, a decent job of actually covering up the evidence of what he had done, um, except for that initial $100,000 loan. That was something he didn't sufficiently hide. Once mm-hmm. that was found, it was kind of broke the, the thing wide open, and then criminal probes were started, and people really started digging, and uh, it all came out. Fall was convicted for accepting bribes. And he was the first presidential cabinet member to go to prison for his conduct while in the cabinet. Um, The second time that happened was during Watergate. And it's interesting because Watergate is such a um, uh, 
like it looms very large in American yeah. political culture. And before there was Watergate, you know, the day before that news broke, people would have used Teapot Dome as the benchmark mm -hmm. of political corruption. Um, even though it was years later, it would have been like, man, this is as crooked as those Teapot Dome fellas, you know. And yeah. um, only only with the coming of um, Watergate do we now have, you know, a new kind of a new benchmark. And um, they're often compared to each other, although they were um, fairly different. But they, it was high, high corruption. And, um, you know, you've got cabinet members going to jail. Um, as, as a small side note on that, um, Nixon is somebody that is pointed to in that uh, historical rankings article as, what do we do with Nixon, guys? Because he yeah. obviously resigns in disgrace over this, you know, terrible scandal. But uh, as Liz Lemon said, he did good things in China. You know, he he did some kind of amazing things. In, 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 if you want to look at it that way. So what do you do with him? He's kind of a, a conundrum. Um, so before there was Watergate, there was Teapot Dome. Um, Warren G. Harding and his reputation suffers immensely because of this. And I find this interesting and unjust. Um, Harding didn't approve. He didn't even know about this. He mm -hmm. wasn't involved. He did personally appoint um, Albert Fall, and they were kind of buddies. There were two people that he appointed to his cabinet. The other one, his name escapes me, but they were like best friends. And people were like, is he really the best man for the job, or did you just put your, your, your buddy in office? Mm -hmm. And um, that, to a lesser extent, and obviously to a much greater extent, the um, appointment and then scandal and eventual jailing of Albert Fall really, really brought Harding's um, stock down. It reflected on him nev negatively, obviously, but Fall's guilt, the fact that he had done what he did, wasn't even uncovered until Harding had died. Wow. Warren G. Harding died in office. He was visiting California, and um, his health was, it was kind of in the newspapers that he wasn't doing good. He was a very popular president, um, and the nation was kind of following his health closely, and he died in office and there was great mourning across the country. Um, even internationally, people saw him as a president of peace and a good man. Mm -hmm. And um, so he dies with nary a whiff of any you know, wrongdoing in his cabinet. And um, he won, as we already said, his election in an, a landslide of epic proportions. But because this was so scandalous and shocking to the American public, um, you know, he was guilty by association. And on a certain level, that makes sense, right? He appointed these people. He hopefully is exercising judgment when appointing people. And so in that sense, you can kind of link the blame to him. You should have appointed somebody who wasn't going to take a bunch of money to, you know, make themselves rich off of their job. But he didn't do it. And I think maybe part of the reason that he suffers so much is this was kind of the first time something like this had happened. It was definitely the first time that a cabinet member had gone to prison. But um, this was a little, it's kind of singular in American history. There had been plenty of scandals before. There had been bribery accusations and there was, you know, plenty of accusations of uh, infidelity and, you know, whatever, chicanery. But this one was big and it was you know, it was just so obviously a quid pro quo. Hey, give me a pile of money and I'll, you know, use my office to uh, to to make you rich, too. And so I think 
you know, in the, in the way that like the first time you, a story breaks or a certain crime or whatever is reported on that looms really large in the mind. And then if more things come out, it's like, well, yeah, I still kind of am most mad about that first one that I heard about. I'm most mad. Yeah. About that one. And so I think, um, that is, that's my, my stance for why Harding, um, un, unjustly, um, relegated to the bottom of the rankings there are other reasons like i said there's extramarital affairs and there are um kind of more legitimate political reasons choices he made that people put him at the bottom but by far the biggest thing was teapot dome something he had no knowledge of no involvement in and didn't even become public knowledge until after he was in the ground so uh justice for warren i'm i'm uh (laughs) i'm apologist But, you know, that's the story of the biggest, um, one of the biggest, if not the biggest political scandals in um, American history who brought down one of the most popular, well, the most popularly, at least as he was elected, presidents in American history. Wow, it's so fascinating. Um, I knew going into this that Harding was not... Uh, well regarded because and I wonder if you remember this joke that they make on the show Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt but it's when the character Titus is pulling out money from an ATM and he pulls out more money than he has (laughs) and so the ATM spits out negative one dollars because he's over withdrawn (laughs) they give him a negative one dollar bill and on the negative one dollar bill, it has the president's <laughs> face, and that president is Warren G. Harding. <laughs> no, that's a good joke. Um, but I think I I have to side with you in this case. I think I have to agree here that it doesn't really seem like he was involved at all. I think that's a very unjust uh, extrapolation. I mean, who knows? Maybe he was involved in some other way, but this was definitely somebody else's fault. Yeah. Yeah. And it just I mean, it was I guess it was just such a blow that like the whole institution of the presidency at the time just became questioned. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Um, Good point. Yeah. I will also point out that there is a kind of a a myth that the term fall guy um, comes from Albert Fall. However, that phrase was in use long before. um, But that is kind of like a romantic idea that the idea of the fall guy comes from Albert fall. This but, person whose name was actually fall and Albert bacon fall. What a name, by the way. Oh yeah. That's a really great name. I mean, I'd never thought I'd be betrayed by bacon in any way. I love bacon, <laughs> but uh, this guy, this guy sure did it. And it's, yeah, that's, that's a, a great name in a history of like great 1920s names. You can just, you yes, can hear, uh, you can hear the mutton chops when you hear <laughs> Charles bacon or Albert bacon fall. <laughs> that's so true. One footnote is a personal story that relates to today's episode. A few days before we recorded, my wife gave birth to a healthy baby boy. We had a hard time picking a name for him, and one of my favorite options was Warren. When I pitched that name to my wife, I intentionally left out the fact that our only president named Warren is often listed as the worst of the 20th century. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk at you next time.